Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, November 22nd, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the third episode of The Mandalorian, have a big spoiler-filled discussion about that. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And a guest on today's discussion is our resident Star Wars expert from Star Wars Insider and the Full of Sith podcast, Brian Young. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad that we have you back uh, because, like I said, every every time you appear on this podcast, I don't think anybody – I don't think there's anybody outside of Lucasfilm in the world that knows more about Star Wars. So I'm glad to, to have your knowledge uh, here. I'm, I'm going to take your word for that. I'm sure there's somebody out there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so – the Mandalorian episode number three. Uh, I wanted to get brief reactions before we we dive into spoilers. I will first say that I think this might be the best directed episode so far. Uh, Deborah Chow has some chops. I mean, if if you weren't convinced by her previous directing work, uh, this uh, has the most going on, the most mythology. The there's a lot of action. Um, it's. It also has the least of Baby Yoda. No, actually, I guess the, the first episode has the least of Baby Yoda. But um, I, I think for me, the, the 
because it it doesn't have the cuteness as much uh it, it, that that I felt it was lacking I wanted baby Yoda um but uh I really enjoyed this episode and I really have no idea where the show is going to be headed <laughs> and we can talk about that a little bit later uh Brian what did you think um you know I thought this was a really fun episode though it felt really tense for me right like he immediately goes and hands the baby off and then you're sort of sick to your stomach going like oh man is this how this is gonna go like uh is it going to just uh eliminate everything that seems to have been set up that we really like and of course we know that that's not the case but um it was built in a really interesting way i i the only complaint I've had about the series at all so far actually happens in this episode. Um, and that's because it feels like there was that moment where he goes back in to get his armor, uh, you know, upgraded and it feels beat for beat the same moment that we got in the first episode, but it didn't feel as though it was enhancing what had come before. It wasn't like an echo. It was just sort of, it almost felt like these were two filmmakers that had worked discreetly on different projects without actually checking in with each other. So they, they did the same sort of thing. Um, but I do, but I am glad we got more of the flashbacks, but yeah, it's very lore heavy. And that moment toward the end that I'm sure we'll talk about later was uh, a stand and cheer sort of moment. Oh, for sure. Uh, Brad, what did you think? Yeah, I think this is, this might be the best episode yet. Probably. Um, it definitely, changes the trajectory of the series and kind of finally gives uh, Mando some motivation other than just being a bounty hunter, uh, provides some character development, introduces some new details. And I, I felt the same way that Brian did actually about that, uh, that certain scene, because there, there were even like certain shots. I was like, why are you doing that again? You, we've already established what this place is. And like, I don't, it, it just, it's, you hit it right in the money. It seemed like they just didn't communicate with each other and they were like, oh, well, this will be a cool shot. So you're talking about that shot of the, the mythosaur above the. Yeah, it was like arch. the exact yeah. same shot again. And it was like, it was like presenting it as if we were seeing it for the first time. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, but yeah, this episode was, was still great. Um, I, I kind of disagree with your angle about the cuteness, Peter, because I still think there was some good cuteness there. And I mean, just because this series <laughs> takes place after return of the Jedi doesn't mean it has to be return of the Jedi. Oh, I'm not saying that. It's just like last episode was so cute. You had baby Yoda in full effect. You had the Jawas, sure. Uh, sure. which, which by the way, I, I got to mention uh, my friend Allie mentioned to me after seeing that episode that I didn't, I didn't know, you know, the Jawas wanted him to get the egg, which they call Suka. Suka is a word that they've used in the past. And actually, if you go to Galaxy's Edge, there is a song that DJ Rex plays by uh, some Jawas called Utini, which I think you can actually download on Apple, you know, on iTunes. And uh, that song has them talking about Utini. So there's a whole song. I think I think of, you mean Utini. Or, or, or yeah, or, or about uh, not uh, they, they talk about Suka. So there's a whole song about the egg, which I think is just amazing. Like. Brian, do you think, you know, you are a person who dives into this whole mythology of the canon. Do you think they're talking about the same egg or do you think like Jawas are just obsessed with any egg? You know, I wonder if it varies by Jawa culture, because I'm not sure how much uh, the Jawas on Tatooine. Maybe they were just obsessed with the most difficult to get egg on any planet they were on so on Tatooine maybe it would be a crate dragon but here on on this planet it's the mud horn um and it 
it felt much more ritualistic, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that they cut it off and then they're just eating it as sort of a waste rather than, um, I don't know, maybe it's just a delicacy, who knows? But yeah, it I, was it was fascinating one way or the other. I speculated on last week's episode that maybe it's like a thing in their culture that they think it gives them like super powers or like, you know, it's... I mean, Jawas are kind of based on natives, right? So, like, there's stuff in, like, native cultures that they believe by eating, it brings them long life and stuff like that. Like, I was thinking yeah. maybe it's some... It, maybe the people involved did not even think this far about it. But Well, it's interesting, though, um, looking up the track listings on the Galaxy's Edge uh, playlist, this is the... Um, it, it's not performed by just any jawas it's performed by the dusty jawas and i wonder if that uh is a band name or a reference to this specific group of jawas yeah i think the the figures for these jawas in stores is like the off-world jawas or something yeah, yeah that's what i've yeah. seen yeah so uh, okay uh you know we should dive into it but before we dive into it i should acknowledge that this is the first live action star wars thing directed by a woman Right? Like, am, am, am I right by saying that? Um, well, that we've seen, yeah. yeah. I know there are other women in the, you know, in the hopper as far as this goes. But yes, Deborah Chow and this episode is the the first live action in, indeed, yeah. And I, I went to this panel uh, with her, Kathleen Kennedy. There's a whole group of people up on stage talking. And Kathleen Kennedy just couldn't shut up about how much she loved Deborah Chow and, like, the footage uh she even like said this thing which came off really badly the way she said it but you could tell you you can understand where she was coming from where she was uh kathleen kennedy was saying she was looking at all this uh all these dailies coming in from the mandalorian and she asked like who did this fight scene and she was told that it's deborah chow and she said uh up on stage like oh wow that looks as good as you you couldn't tell that that wasn't a male director I was like, ouch. But you you understand what she was getting at. Uh, yeah, It was just yeah. said in a pretty poor way. Uh, anyways, uh, this episode's 35 minutes, so it's a, bit, a little bit longer than last week's. Uh, it begins with uh, Mando is on his way back to his planet. Do we still have not have a name for his planet? We still don't at this point. But we know it's not Tatooine. And, Definitely. Uh, he has received a hollow transmission from Carl Weathers' character, Grief Karga, telling him to deliver, uh, deliver Baby Yoda directly to the client. Uh, you know, the score in this episode sounds a bit more traditional than the, the previous two episodes, which sounded kind of like bold. And uh, th this has more tones of like the Emperor and like underworld themes and stuff like that. I, I, am I the only one that sensed that? I felt a little bit like to me the episode felt really designed like a Hitchcock film and I kind of felt like there were little bits of Bernard Herrmann oh, yeah. in the music um, Yoda is playing with this knob in the spaceship and he tells him it's not a toy uh, you know this is a setup obviously to, to later on but do you think at this point the Mandalorian is having regrets bringing him back or like because, or because later we see him in a more contemplative state. Like, do you think at this point he's just like doing the job? I mean, I think he was already more contemplative as soon as he saw the thing. Um, I mean, the way he pauses at the end of the first episode and just kind of reaches his finger out to touch the little guy. Uh, I think that he was already like, well, shit, what am I going to do now? 
Well, and I think there's that moment in the previous episode, too, where he's screaming at the Jawas to get away from it. Um, that feels a little bit more paternal than just like, here's this mark I've captured. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I think he's already, he's, the gears are already turning about what he's going to do. Otherwise he wouldn't have asked his question in the, you know, later. We had one listener email. It was from John Jay. He writes in baby Yoda is definitely more of a toddler than a baby. So if you say the species live for 10 years for every one year of a human lifespan, this makes him about four or five years old. So uh, I, I know we were talking previously about, you know, how old baby Yoda is that there's that. Uh, I wanted to bring this up to you particularly, Brian. Donna Dickens, who has written for us in the past, uh, tweeted out on Twitter that she she was wondering if Baby Yoda from Mandalorian and Anakin Skywalker being born on around the same year is a coincidence or not. Um, you know, I don't think anything that they do in Star Wars over there is a coincidence. But I, doing the math, I do think that Anakin is one year younger than the asset. Um, at least if we're given. Um, John Favreau's timeline where he says it's seven years after uh, the Battle of Yavin, if we're if we're taking that to heart. I've heard some people say it's five years after Jedi. But uh, no, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that it places it firmly in a different period of time in the galaxy. And, uh, you know, it, it's hard to say what could tie into the concept of the balance of the force and the, the force awakening and things like that. But I would not be surprised if we get to the end of this season and find that there's some extra connection there, especially given how force sensitive this uh, this toddler really is. Yeah. So he brings the baby Yoda to, uh, through the outpost filled with aliens and creatures to the alley where Werner Herzog's character is. He are we calling him the client? Is that his? That's what it. That's what it says on IMDb. Um, the doctor scans, uh, the baby and declares that he's very healthy. Uh, Mando asks how many fobs he gave out and Herzog explains that the asset was an extreme importance to him and he had to ensure the delivery. Uh, he presents Mando with the rest of the Beskar steel. And the great thing here is obviously it's in this safe that is the, that ice cream container, that Woodrow hood. It had Willrow. and Willrow. or Will, oh, sorry, Wilro Hood, uh, you know, carries in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, Empire Strikes yeah. Back. Um, for those out there probably listening, there's probably a lot of people that don't know who Wilro Hood is. So, Brian, who is Wilro Hood? Um, not anybody really. Uh, Wilro Hood is a background character from Empire Strikes Back, and he gained notoriety in the fandom for exactly what you said, like uh, an over-the-counter ice cream machine stood in for a prop of him running away with it. And the joke in fandom was like, you know, why would he like, he's evacuating cloud city and an ice cream machine is the only thing he takes. Like, what does that say about him as a character? And it became really popular in fandom to the point where if you've been to any star Wars conventions, there's now a, a running of the Wilro hoods and hundreds of people will dress up as Wilro hood with these, uh, with these ice cream maker props and they will run the convention center. And uh, there's really, I mean, that's that's really yeah. all there is to him. And, and uh, not, not only that, though, like, you know, he's on screen for less than, I think, two seconds. 
Oh, and yeah. uh, fans demanded that Kenner, I think it was Kenner at the time, make a figure of him. So he actually has a figure. He actually has a backstory, which I don't think is canon anymore. But like, I think those like ice cream makers were at one time like data that he was trying to save or something. So it it was um so uh he won one of the fan contests in the late nineties, early two thousands to be made a figure. And yeah, the expanded universe said that the ice cream machine contained a data core so that he was saving all of his data. But now he could have been stealing a safe full of anything, as far as we know, as for, uh, based on what we've seen here with those containers on the Mandalorian. Yeah, but this is the kind of like I think, you know, fan servicey drop that I love that they're doing with Mandalorian. It's not like doesn't feel obvious, but it's so satisfying and like you know just brings a smile to my face. So. Uh, okay, so the stormtroopers escort the baby away. Uh, Mando asks what their plans are. Werner explains that the guild's rules that you know all is forgotten. Uh, he comments that finding a Mandalorian in these times are, is much more rare than finding the Beskar steel, uh, which probably tells you you know how many Mandalorian exist in this galaxy. Uh, he walks out with the prize, and we learn that chapter three is titled "The Sin." So, what is the sin? Is the sin him? giving the baby for the for the for the metal i think we're meant to imply that yeah, yeah. Or we're, we're meant to infer that for sure um i think the other sin could have been i mean like that's what's great about this title is it could work on a lot of different levels was the sin um the client's plan to give all of the bounty hunters fobs was the sin grief cargas for agreeing to that against sort of uh bounty hunter guild rules i think that's really interesting and ironic that um you know the mandalorian is so excoriated for breaking the rules of the guild but they broke the rules with the job in the first place yeah okay so mando makes its way back to the mandalorian hideout and we get a better look at his fellow Mandalorian. Some of them look huge. There's like this one that guy that looks pretty huge one of the guy's voices sounds familiar I'm reasonably certain that's John Favreau, and if you look in the credits, that character's named Paz Vizla. Yeah, that's oh. what I thought too. I thought it sounded like John Favreau as well. Wait, so wait, doesn't the character he voice in what Clone Wars? In Clone Wars, is named Pre Vizla, uh, which means that Clan Vizla at least has a a piece of this of this uh, hideout. Um, which is really interesting when you take that knowledge and the knowledge that uh, of the purge and the idea that Mandos are somehow rare. That's not something that's been in the canon before yet. The last time we saw the Mandalorians was at the end of Rebels, which happens prior to the events of Rogue One. And uh, the Mandalorians have repelled the Empire, the Imperial-backed uh, Mandalorian forces that had controlled mandalore during the dark times that were sort of stooges of the of palpatine and they handed the dark saber off to bo katan who was played by katie sackoff and that was sort of uniting the mandalorians in that rebellion against the empire and we haven't seen anything about it since so in the time from just before a new hope to here it sounds like this purge has happened that's not something we've Which, heard what is about that before. like 10 15 years or so um no it's only seven or eight years seven, eight. okay um, um so so yeah like there's definitely connections into the the family 
and clans from Clone Wars. There's definitely connections to uh, Rebels, and there's a lot of untold story in what has happened to the Mandalorians that we're just now getting glimpses of that's really fascinating to me. Okay, so he brings the steel to the Mandalorian metalsmith. I don't know. Uh, does she have a name? Uh, the armorer is what is what they've credited the her as okay. in the in the credits. Um, and she will form the armor with him. Uh, sh- she warns him that the steel will draw a look, uh, will many, many looks, and it has uh, you know that bulky Mandalorian. Uh, and a few of his buddies come over and mention how the, the metal is the spoils of the Great Purge, as you said, and the reason why they are hidden like sand rats uh, now that they live in the shadows and only come out one at a time. Uh, I think this is so interesting, by the way, that this show was set up as it's about one Mandalorian, and it's quickly becoming apparent that it's about the Mandalorians in, in a group, but... um. Okay, so Mandalorian is dealing with someone uh, who is with the Galactic Empire, Warner Herzog's character, and the other Mandos aren't happy about that. Uh, He gets into a one-on-one fight uh, with the bulky guy, and, like, they're, what, it's like a knife fight? Are are Uh, the Mandalorians, like, skilled with the knife? um, I mean, they're skilled with every weapon, but those are vibroblades, I believe. If you look closely at them, the, the blades are vibrating, and that's a concept that came into the canon um, during the original West End Games uh, Star Wars role-playing game in 87. Oh, wow. Um, and, okay, so that fight uh, ends when she says, the Empire is no longer and the Beskar has returned. Uh, she asks that uh, if he has ever removed his helmet and if there has ever been, or if it has ever been removed by others, and he says, no, never, uh, Brad, this must be a setup, right? Like they've mentioned like 10 times already that like the, the, you don't remove the helmet of Mandalorian. Yeah, it's gotta be, especially because the, in, in the trailers we've seen, there's a, a moment where the Mandalorian is standing, uh, in front of a woman who reaches for his helmet and it cuts away before we see if she's going to take it off of his head or if he's going to stop her, uh, or anything like that. So I, I feel like that's definitely a blatant lie on uh, the Mando's part. And we'll probably see the time that maybe uh, he ended up taking it off. Yeah. Uh, they say this is the way that's repeated in a communal way. Uh, is that something we've ever seen in star Wars canon before? Or is this no. a new like battle cry for this is, this is a new sort of thing that we've seen as is the whole Mando's not taking off their helmets. Uh, Sabine Wren, Pre Vizsla, Bo-Katan, um, any Mando that 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 was in Death Watch, they've taken their helmet helmets off in in the previous animated iterations. So um, this must be new, or perhaps it's some old uh, ancient uh, thing that they've sort of revived as they've gone underground into the purge. Okay, so she asks what caused the damage, and he says a mud horn. She says that. He- he has earned his signet. This is something that we had a question from the first episode. What is a signet? And uh, but he says he can't con- accept it because it wasn't a noble kill. So the signet we have to assume is that is that icon that is on the shoulder pad kind of thing. Like Boba Fett has a mythosaur, so I guess he killed the mythosaur. It- that's definitely what it's leading to, but Sabine Wren has also earned her armor, and she sort of repaints that a couple of times over the show. There's there's one 
monster that it is in season one, but after the Convors, the sort of mystical force owls that start appearing on that show, she changes it to those. Um, so, so again, I'm not, I'm not like we're in uncharted territory as far as what those things might mean. Okay, this leads me to a question. Uh, the Mandalorian has gotten his ass handed to him by creatures in two episodes in a row. And he's, you know, had himself saved by outside intervention both times. Uh, you know, we, we thought that we were going to be following this, like, badass Mandalorian guy, but he doesn't even have a signet. So, uh, Brad, do you think, like, this might be early on in his career as a, a bounty hunter? Like, you mean Mando isn't as, as much of an established bounty hunter as we think? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, he's already got quite a reputation about him. We've, we've heard several characters talk about how good he is at his job. So I guess that, that couldn't, that might not preclude him from being early in his career. Maybe he's just, uh, quickly gifted about it, but I, I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting question. Um, we hear again, this is the way, uh, they're getting into a lot more of the mythology of this episode, which I, which I really appreciate uh we see her melt the beskar steel and once again this is intercut with the mando having flashback of his parents apparently being killed by super battle droids and i say apparently because we don't you know their death happens off screen uh could they have survived is this something that like will come back later in the season or series uh what, what do you guys think I'm not convinced it's going to come back otherwise, because I think all of the, the stuff about him being a foundling, if they would have survived, they would have gone back to collect him yeah. and he wouldn't have had to been accepted into some other part of the Mando culture. The The other question I have here is like, what planet is this that this attack's happening on? And there has been speculation that that Obi-Wan might appear in this full sequence whenever we end up seeing like the whole this whole backstory sequence. I wanted to hear like Brad, what is your thoughts on that? Like could this be like Tatooine or some place we've seen before? I I've been wondering if we'll see maybe who is responsible for potentially I don't know maybe maybe saving him after his parents are killed or anything like that. Obviously, he becomes part of the Mandalorian group, but I do wonder if maybe someone comes along like Obi-Wan uh, and, and is able to take him away from, you know, the, that dangerous situation. Uh, as far as it being on Tatooine, I, I don't know. Has there ever been any, like, reference or anything like that to a an, an attack by the Trade Federation or the or rather, I guess, the Empire um, with battle droids on Tatooine? No, so so um, battle droids were exclusively the separatist army, uh, especially super battle droids, um, especially in those formations. And the ship that we saw there was a, a, a separatist gun platform, uh, a missile a missile platform. So it was definitely it feels to me it was definitely during the Clone Wars. But there were a number of planets aligned uh, with Mandalore. But Mandalore was neutral during the war, and as far as I can tell, uh, there were no um, separatist invasions of any Mandalorian planets, so they might have been on a different planet altogether. But Tatooine was definitely part of the Outer Rim and in hut space. So if you go back and think to the, um, the Clone Wars movie, the animated feature that was released, the chief plot point about that was that the Republic and the separatists were both uh, angling in negotiations with the huts to be able to use the hyperspace lanes there because neither 
the separatists nor the republic controlled anywhere near that region and mandalore is near that part of space as well um and that all of the troubles that bring obi-wan and anakin to mandalore in the first place are not because of the overarching war it's because of their internal conflict despite their neutrality and the duchess satine requests obi-wan specifically to intercede because of his Hmm. um relationship with her so i don't think it's a planet that we've seen i don't think it's tatooine and i'm curious if it's even a mandalorian planet um at all uh if it's if it's a holding there or if it's some offshoot of some other Mandalorians that had gone elsewhere for some reason, or maybe they're traveling or who knows. Yeah. Well, I think, I I think the purpose of this is for us to see some backstory of who he is. Uh, You know, we get some humanity there and it's also him seeing himself in baby Yoda, who is also an orphan of of sorts. Uh, So she explains that the whistling birds are a powerful weapon and he needs to use them sparingly. This is uh, for later in the episode. Grief tells one of the bounty hunters he can't have a puck because he has failed in, you know, that capture Uh, in walks Mando now in full badass, all Beskar steel armor. Everyone in the cantina is looking at him. Uh, It almost makes me wonder, like, is it worth having that armor if it's going to get so many, so many eyes? Like, as a bounty hunter, what your work is to do, like, is to be unnoticed most times. So, uh, but um, and by the way, I'm I'm pretty sure that that is the reused Constable Zuvio costume that the guy is wearing at the bar. I've seen it. He appears at the bar in all three episodes, I think. Um, Okay, so grief says that uh, all that they all hate him because he's a legend, and he was able to do it when they weren't. Uh, grief also got some Beskar steel from the job, which he puts in his chest pocket, which we'll come back to later. And uh, Mando wants his next job. Grief t- tries to talk him out of it, tell tell him to take a, a break, tries to get him to go to the Twyla Killing Bass. Uh, what is this a reference to? Uh, the Twi'lek healing baths, uh, Twi'leks are sort of uh, known as uh, slaves and things like that, um, and massage therapists, I guess. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, we've got uh, Anna Tan Geller, two characters that were in Phantom Menace that were sort of, uh, I think they were Sebulba's slaves, and they just sort of followed him around giving him massages. You can see them in the background in a few different shots in Phantom Menace. But uh, in Return of the Jedi, it really established the idea that that with Ula, that Twi'lek women were coveted as slaves for their their dancing prowess and whatever. And this is really just a reference to that because they're um, they're very sexualized in a lot of corners of the galaxy <laughs> uh, although Harrison Dula sort of fought against that with her portrayals but but uh, that doesn't mean they're they're not still sexualized in the galaxy okay so uh, grief offers him a pick of three pucks uh, all of them far away which Mandalorian uh, Mando likes uh, one of them is a nobleman's son a Mon Calamari who has skipped bail uh, on the ocean dunes of Karlak is this a reference to anything or is this just like flavor text uh, I went and looked that up, and I did not find any references to uh, to a planet of that name, but I could have been spelling it wrong. I'm going to have to go back and look yeah. at it with the subtitles on to find out, but not as far as I could tell. Uh, Mando is once again concerned what they're going to do with the baby. He says they work for the Empire. What are they doing here? Uh, the Empire is gone. All you, 
all that are left are mercenary and warlords. Uh, we're told he's told to report them to the New Republic if he's worried. Uh, Mando seems to realize that you know reporting them to the New Republic. I, I kind of get the impression won't isn't going to do anything. Um, but that also makes me question. Brad, maybe you you could answer this one. Uh, is the Empire gone, or is there like the remnants of the Empire across the galaxy? Like, could Werner be part of the like? Is he serving himself, or is he serving a bigger uh, purpose? I mean, I'm willing to bet that the Empire isn't uh, around as far as being as strong as it once was, but clearly uh, there are remnants of the Empire that have stuck around and are maybe trying to hold on to some semblance of power use their, you know, in place as, you know, people who were formerly of the Empire as intimidation. You know, uh, as we've seen in the trailers, you know, we know that there's a character coming out played by Giancarlo Esposito, uh, who is clearly of the Empire and still brings with him an, an army of death troopers. So there's still some dangerous people out there associated with the Empire. And at the very least, there's there's probably some sect of it still trying to survive. Yeah, uh, Grief tells him to buy some Canto Spice, which is another fun reference. Uh, Mando goes back to the Razor Crest and prepares to take off. He sees the removed knob for, uh, from ba- that Baby Yoda was playing with and has an emotional moment. Uh, I think this might be one of my favorite parts of this episode because I love moments in movies and TV shows where we see a character sitting there like thinking and trying to make a decision, like a life decision that's going to change their life. But the interesting thing here is we don't usually see this with someone with a mask on yet. We know exactly what he's thinking. We know exactly how he's feeling and uh, you know, without any facial expressions. So I, I know people have uh, knocked the show for, you know, not being able to relate to the character because of the mask. But I feel like here, it was kind of uh, interesting that, uh, we, you know, we were with that character despite not being being able to see the facial expressions. And uh, Mando goes back to the the client's place and sees the baby hover pod in the dumpster out back. Uh, I'm kind of sad that the pod's going to be gone. How is Yoda going to walk around? Like, are, is he just going to carry him or is he going to, like, walk? I mean, we've seen him walk. Like, what what is the future transportation of baby Yoda, Brad? Um, a baby Bjorn made of Beskar. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. Uh, okay, he sets up a sniper location across the way and listens into a conversation between the client and the doctor. Uh, where where we hear that he's telling him, "I don't care. Extract the necessary material and be done with it." Uh, what is the necessary material? What do we think? I like, think so. I've heard some people say, well, they're trying to take its midi-chlorians, but that's kind of absurd because midi-chlorians are in everything. So they wouldn't need anything special to, to extract midi-chlorians because they're in every cell of every living thing. Um, I'm wondering if it's genetic material. There's been some work. The insignia on Dr. Pershing's shoulder uh, has some connection at least to the patches worn on uh, the clones when they're in their training facility on Camino. So I'm wondering if, if it is like literally just genetic material of this incredibly rare species for whatever reason. And that maybe, maybe the fact that it's force sensitive is immaterial to their aims. I think you're probably right there. Um, okay. The, that theory has even been expanded to, to 
wonder if maybe the the Mandalorian will be some kind of uh, setup that will explain how they're able to bring the Emperor back in the Rise of Skywalker. I I would doubt that. Yeah, I, I did I did too. If only because if you look at production timelines, like this was written way before the 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 switch in how the in directions that they were going to be taking with with yeah. Rise of Skywalker, right? I, I will say that there is some stuff I've seen in this series so far that I think doesn't like set up Rise of Skywalker, but introduces some aspects that could be used in Rise of Skywalker. So yeah, just also, like the basic concept. Yeah. yeah. Um. But okay. Uh. The other thing is he uh the client says that he can no longer guarantee his safety. Uh. So why would the doctor be at risk here? Like, what? what it, who is after him? Any 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 speculation here? I think we know too little to make some kind of guess yeah. about that. Uh, could this whole thing be part of like Operation Cinder? Um, I it seems like Operation Cinder was very at least what we know of Operation Cinder is that it was very specifically focused on the utter destruction of a number of planets that were either important or annoying to Palpatine. And the Empire. And this doesn't really seem to fit with any of that. But having said that, there are, I'm sure, are other aspects of Operation Cinder that we're not aware of. Or maybe he had other Nero decree-like decrees. Yeah. Okay, so Mando knocks on the door. He distracts the stormtroopers. He blows a wall in the hideout and takes out the troopers inside. Here we get to see, you know, Chow's action... uh, filmmaking you know some great tense atmospheric action here um she uses uh or he uses a grappling to pull a trooper to him and stab him uh what, what did you guys think of the action in the sequence i thought it was pretty well like really well designed it felt more like almost like a horror film with the mando as the monster right he kept fading into the shadows and coming back out and taking care of people. I really, I really love one of the stormtroopers has a line about how, you know, the Mando just needs to surrender, you know, because right before he gets his, and, um, it was just really cool, very, uh, confidently directed stuff. Um, one thing I wanted to mention is it's very close combat. Like it's not, uh, what we typically see in the star Wars universe. So there's a lot of like hiding behind crates and stuff like that. Uh, Mando shoots open a door and is being fired upon by a trooper, which he makes short work of. The doctor is in there with the baby at the, on the table getting analyzed by some kind of equipment. Uh, he shoots a torture droid. Why is the torture droid there? Like, is, is the torture droid torturing baby Yoda? Well, it's not really a torture droid. It's like an interrogation or interrogate. Yeah. So. It's an enhanced interrogation droid, Peter. What, but can, which is not which is not torture. Well, <laughs> <laughs> torture interrogation, apples, oranges. Um, but uh, I mean, can Baby Yoda say anything? Like, I just don't understand why is it there. I, you know, it uh, that hypodermic needle could be loaded up with anything. Maybe it's not torture juice in there. Maybe it's whatever it was that put the baby to sleep. 
Yeah. Um, or 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 maybe that's what was going to extract whatever they needed from it. Yeah. The uh the doctor yells, "Please don't hurt her. It's a child." Which for a second made me think that Baby Yoda is actually female. But then the doctor in the next sentence says, "I protected him. Uh if it wasn't for me, he would probably be dead." So he uses he and she. Do we not know the sex? Is there a sex in this Baby Yoda? I, you know, we don't know anything about the species. They could be completely asexual until they decide, you know, choose what they want to be later. Uh, there's really no, there's really no knowing. Uh, Mandalorian chooses not to kill the doctor and instead, like, he pulls like a Batman where the doctor looks up and he's gone. Uh, and Mano, uh, makes this like stealthy escape and i really love the the escape music for this in this episode again they have some like good like action between the crates and the stormtroopers with mando and he's using his flamethrower to take out uh people i really wonder if that's like visual effects or if that's like something they actually did on set uh and we see a close-up of a burnt trooper like do we see a skull there like i'm not quite sure what i saw it was kind of dark. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess we're we're meant to like wonder what we saw. Uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, he gets surrounded by four troopers. He tells them uh, that he has a, uh, what he has is very valuable, and uses that time to basically set up the whistling birds that basically are these like small uh, tracking missiles that basically kill each of the stormtroopers. By the way. The client seems to be gone. He was there like minutes earlier talking to the doctor. Where is where is Werner Herzog's character? He's doing crime stuff. <laughs> okay. Um, so he uh Mandalorian escapes. We see all the bounty hunters in the cantina getting alerts on the tracking fobs. Uh grief doesn't look happy. Uh Brad, is this a John Wick situation? Here. <laughs> that's exactly what i thought too everyone's getting the alert at the same time and all of the bounty hunters are being notified that there's a bounty out on the mandalorian now so yeah a de- definitely a, a john wick scene yeah uh what were you gonna say yeah that 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 moment felt to me really really um hitchcock in the design of it right where where all the context was built up so that you didn't need to have any words to understand exactly what it was. And I think it was less that the bounty was on the Mandalorian. I'm not sure they knew exactly any of that. It was still, those tracking fobs were still tied to the asset. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Oh, and that, so, that makes sense because they go to grief for the assignments and it would make no sense for the, the tracking fobs to, you know, give them an assignment. That was just to track that, that job that they already had. Yeah, and so as soon as as soon as he leaves and everyone starts seeing the fobs go off, that that moment of uh, understanding that's brooked between the filmmakers and the story and the audience, it's a really really beautiful moment where the gut kind of you know you kind of feel get kicked in the gut like oh man this is how this is gonna go and it it gave me I haven't seen uh, forgive me I haven't seen the John Wick films. But it reminded me very much of sort of like a situation that it was building like toward the raid or or dread, right? Where it's just like, oh, this is happening and this this good person is going to be doing this and we're going to send literally everything we have at them. Yes. And in this next sequence, Mando is making his escape through the streets, but is very noticeable. And 
Uh, bounty hunters are everywhere. Like, this is a big Western showdown of sorts, right? Like, he's surrounded. And uh, Grief tells him to put the package down. Mando says, uh, put your bounty down and perhaps I'll – or he says, put your bounty down and let, uh, perhaps I'll let you pass. Uh, tells him to put, put it on the speeder. Uh, there's a droid on that speeder. I know, Brian, you mentioned in our first episode here that the Mandalorian doesn't like droids. Uh, is there any reason to, for the droid to be here? Is there a trust between the Mandalorian and the droid or like a trust problem of sorts? Or is it just like they just needed someone to drive the speeder? I think it's a visual like aesthetic, right? Like if they had if it were a person sitting there in the carriage of the speeder getting ready to drive away, as soon as the shooting started, they would have cleared out. Yeah. No, right. They, but a droid isn't going to do that. That makes sense. Um, how do I know I can trust you because I'm your only hope? And obviously this is a play on a classic line. Uh, he looks down at the baby. Uh, it's cute and sleeping, even though there's all this gunfire everywhere. Uh, he decides to start shooting jumping into the speeder with the uh, the droid hiding behind the cargo and orders the dri- droid to drive. Uh, we uh, have a big-scale action sequence with uh, bounty hunters uh, after Mando, who is on the speeder, everybody's shooting. Uh, Brad, what did you think of this whole sequence? Yeah, the sequence was awesome. Uh, just seeing this happen in live action is great. Seeing so many Mandalorians uh, come to the aid of Mando, uh, seeing them fly in on their jetpacks, uh, all the different armor, just blasting away. Uh, this was such a cool scene, and this is something that I think uh, you know Star Wars fans have been waiting for a long time to see. Um, and it's it's definitely a, a very exciting sequence. It's one of those things where like it, it's basically you know a ca- the cavalry shows up sequence and saves the day. And the yeah, it's just it's so well done. And by the way, like I feel like in Episode Two when the Mandalorian ship was basically torn to shreds for for parts i was like oh they set up the ship and now it's completely gone what what is the rest of the show uh obviously got the ship back but you know they've built up this location and you know the mandalorians in hiding and now that they've shown themselves uh i'm assuming they can't live there anymore i i'm assuming mandalorian isn't gonna be able to take jobs anymore he's gonna be on the right like it feels like everything that's happened in these first three episodes except for him (laughs) getting the baby like we don't know where this is going well i think what this sets up is that like every bounty hunter in the parsec has a tracking fob leading to him so it's not like he's got anywhere he can go so he like really it's going to be him uncovering the mystery of what the hell is going on with with the asset and uh it's really a matter of everyone's going to be coming after him yeah i I mean i just think it's exciting that we've built up this location in this place and like we're leaving all of it um uh by the way maybe that uh that droid that was in the the room maybe that was to remove the tracking fob Actually, I'm not sure. Does that droid have those capabilities? Maybe not. I don't even know how the tracking fobs work, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Mandalorian uses his. This is before the 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 whole group of them shows up, but he uses his rifle and uh, grief co- uh, comments. That's one impressive weapon. Something I didn't mention last week when we were talking about Episode Two, Chapter Two of this series, is Mandalorian's rifle, which we know is from you know the Star Wars Holiday Special. Uh, but us seeing what it can do and basically disintegrate people uh, is a fun callback to Empire Strikes Back when Darth Vader tells Boba Fett 
that there should be no disintegration. So I thought that was cool and something I forgot to bring up last week. Um, but so, uh, you know, Mandalorian, his fuel runs out. He can't shoot his flamethrower. It basically seems like he all is fucked. But out of nowhere, the cavalry arrives. The Mandalorians, you know, are, you know, take out all the bounty hunters in grand fashion or at least allow, you know, Mando to make a run for the Razor Crest. Also, uh, I love that that John, what we think is John Favreau's character in this, has that huge, awesome, like, chain gun blaster. Yeah, that's awesome. I like that they don't all look the same. Like, it would be very easy to, like, make them look like stormtroopers where they're kind of, like, indistinguishable except for, like, colors and, you know, how the armor looks. But I like that they are different shapes, different weapons. Um, I'm sure we'll see more of that. Uh uh, I think he says you're going to have to relocate the what uh, I forget. I, I couldn't hear the word, but whatever the the group or whatever. And they say, this is the way this is the way uh, Mendo makes a run for it. Grief is on board the Razor Crest when he gets there and has a gun out. Uh, he says Mendo broke the code. Mendo fires at the carbon freezer uh, freezing chamber, which releases uh, some steam or g- gas, whatever. And it's enough to distract Grief. And uh, Mando is able to fire at Grief and take him out. He falls to the ground. Uh, and he ta- uh, takes off uh, as the battle on the ground continues. But then we see Grief is still alive. He was shot uh, by Mando, but he pulls out the Beskar steel that was in his breast pocket, which saved him. I think if I have one criticism of this episode, it's that um, nobody... Like, there's no casualties. Like, the doctor should have died. He didn't die. Grief should have died. He didn't die. Like, there's a lot of times in this episode that, like, I feel like someone should have died other than a stormtrooper, and they didn't. But I, I, I guess, like, so is Grief going to be, is he being set up as one of the villains of this this series or season? What, what do you guys think? Yeah, no, I think Carl Weathers is definitely going to continue being involved, uh, not just in front of the camera, but behind it as well. We know that, that he's going to be around for season two, which sort of implies to me grief is going to make it through and cause problems for the Mando. Or, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if somehow they come to, to an accord, right? If, if the empire pulls some, uh, some shenanigans that maybe, maybe grief is going to switch sides again, or maybe he's not, maybe he'll just be (laughs) pissed. Um, one of the Mandos wishes him farewell from the sky. Almost looks like a shot from like the Rocketeer or something like that. Um, and uh, he comments, "I got to get one of those." In, in terms, in reference to the jetpack. Uh, do we think that the Mandalorian will get a jetpack of his own, a Beskar steel jetpack? I'm actually wondering why he doesn't have one. Like, is it, could there be some reason for that? I mean, it could be early on in his career, like I said. Like, it doesn't seem like, you know, he doesn't have a signet. I don't know. I'm very curious to hear some more backstory on this character. Yeah, and and it, some part of me makes me wonder if we're going to get it, too. I mean, how much how much backstory did we end yeah. up getting about Blondie in the Man With No Name trilogy? True, true. Um, okay, so he looks down at the kid... Uh, he is, uh, baby Yoda is reaching for the knob on the handle and B, uh, and Mendo hands him it and, uh, you know, Yoda's happy and he, he takes off now 
this kind of uh, like the, I think I've said this before on this podcast. These first three episodes feel to me almost like a first act of a movie. Like this feels like it, it is the prequel to the series. That's it's setting things off into a dramatic motion. But I have no idea where this is headed. Do any of us have any idea where is the Mandalorian headed? I well, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends back up with uh, his Ugnot friend. I mean, right? that, that makes the most sense. That's the only thing that I feel like they've set up that could come back. Like uh, him and IG-11, like, would he go fix IG-11 and he's part of his gang now? Like, like, do we think IG-11 is coming back at all? Could that be possible? I, I, I mean, like, I would like that. But, I mean, uh, at the at the point where, where Taika Waititi is the voice of the IG series droids, as far as we know, he could come back as a different IG unit too. Um, but uh, I think the other logical explanation though, could be knowing that we still have Gina Carana's character, uh, Cara Dune coming up in the series. We have Ming-Na Wen's character coming up in the series. Uh, and she's an assassin. Cara Dune's ex rebel. Maybe he goes and searches for the New Republic or old rebels or anybody who might be able to help him against the Empire. Hmm. Brad, what do, what do you think? Where do you think the series is headed? Because it seems like it can't just be a show where he's on the run. You know, it can't just be, uh, you know, him on the run for the remainder of the season. He needs to find out. We need to find out the mystery of this baby Yoda. There's something involved there. But like, who can he go to? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. He's, you know, he's a bounty hunter, so he doesn't really have any allegiances, but I'm sure he has people that maybe he trusts at least a little bit. Um, but that's, I think that's the big driving force here is, is he'll he'll probably stumble onto something much bigger than he was expecting with uh, this, this baby Yoda and what's going on with it. And it, I guess maybe depending on what he finds out will determine, you know, how the character... Uh, continues his journey obviously i mean that, that's as basic as it gets but like i think it, it it all hinges on exactly what's going on with this baby and and how big whatever operation behind it is and whether or not it's something that he feels the need to stop or let somebody else know about it's it, I, I wonder how big this can get at, um mainly because of just the the how it's restricted by being you know a disney plus series instead of a a movie, you know, obviously Disney's spending a lot of money on this, that each episode costs something like 12 and a half million dollars. So I wonder, you know, I guess how epic the conclusion can be and, and how much can happen. And another thing is, I don't think he can go to like the, the Republic with this baby, because like, it seems earlier in the episode that he does not trust the Republic. Um, I didn't get the impression he didn't trust them. I got the impression he thought they were a joke. Yeah. But if he thinks they're a joke, it's going to bring yeah. this baby with force abilities to them. <laughs> it, who knows? Maybe he finds uh, – maybe this kid ends up in Luke's Jedi Academy. Uh, did you guys have any other thoughts on this episode before we, we end this podcast? Uh, one thing that I forgot to bring bring up during the flashback sequence, do we think that there's any connection whatsoever or maybe it's just a coincidence that – the, the robe that the kid is wearing and uh, his parents are wearing are kind of similar to the red robe that Palpatine wore at one point. Huh. I was thinking too, that, that it was, um, they were a little similar in color to the colors, that the guardians of the wills sort of wear. Um, but, 
Yeah, I it's uh, Palpatine's red was just sort of very formal senatorial gear though. But it's what what cuz but he wear he wears it as Palpatine though, doesn't he? Yeah. Um and it, which like, would I, make it Naboo fashion at that point, I guess. Yeah, that's true. I, mean, well, I, mean, I will say I mean, this was... though. It it does seem like a bold choice to have that like red those red outfits where you could have just made them like in just like you know traditional star wars like people on the street outfits like it seems like that's a setup for something i i was wondering too if it was sort of like a schindler's list reference as well right where like those colors are the only bold and striking colors in those flashbacks maybe the same way the girl in the red dress is you know what i mean that's interesting and that that it's it's really just the visual motif of all of the the sort of washed out war uh backgrounds and visuals and that's just the striking sort of sharp piece of the memory and that maybe maybe that was the filmmaking choice behind the costume and there will be a story choice that follows later that that, that's possible um okay so i in the show notes i'm going to link to brian's review of this episode so you can read that you can also link to my piece from that lucasfilm woman summit where they basically geeked out for 20 minutes about this new technology that's being used to create the show like and i watched this episode three times guys i'm looking at the backgrounds and none of them look like screens to me <laughs> like none of them but the, apparently you know deborah child when she was up on stage at this event told uh, was talking about how she had to previs the entire episode because they almost the entire thing is screens so I don't know. I, I, I can't wait until we get a behind the scenes of this because I, I want to see exactly how they're using this new technology. But I will link that in the show notes. Uh, Brian, where can we find more of your work online? Um, if you want to find me um, on Twitter, uh, my handle is Swankmotron. And uh, all of the stuff I'm doing is is filtered through there. But I do I do work at StarWars.com, Star Wars Insider, uh, for Sci-Fi Channel, and naturally... I'm covering the show for for you at Slash Film and and having a great time doing that. And that goes live uh, on the day of release for the episodes. Um, But uh, my Twitter is probably the best place to find all of my stuff. Cool. Brad, where can we find more work from you? Always on SlashFilm.com, of course. You can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And check out my podcast, which is just, just an obnoxious, stupid podcast about movies. Uh, it's called Go Flix Yourself, available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. Uh, you can find me on SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter at Peter Soretta. I have a new Twitter handle, so go follow me there. I'm I'm tweeting a lot about Mandalorian, so you won't, won't want to miss uh, those daily musings and you know Baby Yoda pictures and memes so yeah so anyways you can find all of us at slashfilm.com you can find this podcast slashfilm daily published every weekday on itunes google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps please feel free to send us your feedback questions comments concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com and please rate and read this podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word and we'll see you tomorrow